Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today's text is an essay entitled On the Equality of the Sexes by Judith Sargent Murray. This essay actually predates Mary Wollstonecraft's Vindication of the Rights of Woman by a year. It was published in 1791. But we are covering it now because Wollstonecraft continued the tradition of European writers. And with Judith Sargent Murray, we've crossed the pond and we're carrying the historical thread to the United States. Judith Sargent Murray was a brilliant thinker and writer, and I think her contributions to American thought should be taught in our schools alongside Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. And I think it's a crying shame that I had never even heard of her before doing this project. Um, So I'm super excited to discuss her work today. But before we start that discussion, I want to introduce my reading partner today, Jenny Austin Priest. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Amy. Jenny and I met during a semester in Jerusalem during our sophomore year in college, along with Sherry Crawford, who did the episodes on the creation of patriarchy. And we formed a group, a la Dead Poet Society, where we would sneak around at night. And now that I have children of my own and my oldest daughter is in college, I think of us sneaking around at night in Jerusalem, halfway around the world. And I just think, Oh, what were we thinking? Oh my gosh, my kids better not do that. But wow, it was so fun. We made blanket forts and read our poetry to each other. And we had these meaningful intellectual discussions. And um, we kept that writing group going after we got back from Jerusalem. And that's significant to me, especially now looking back in retrospect, because Jenny, you kept that writing group going after we were all married and I had two little kids at home. And and really, as I remember it, that was the only thing that kept me writing during those years. And I'm so grateful for your friendship, Jenny. I remember when I first kind of met you in Jerusalem, I, I just was awed by your you are a a true free spirit. I just would look at you and think, how is she so like artistic and so full of life and so full of fun ideas and uh, music and poetry and all kinds of like uh, organizing poetry slams and just full of life and, and seem to be free of um, like worrying about maybe what people thought of you. And I just admired you so much and still do. And I'm just so thrilled that you're here today. So thanks, Jenny, for being here. Could you actually, could we start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself? Of course. And oh my gosh, what an introduction and (laughs) humbling things that you said. But first of all, I hope that when I grow up, Amy, I can be more like you (laughs) someday. Uh, What a gift to be part of this project and Mm. and what a gift to think back and to reconnect and think back to those days in Jerusalem. And and what a gift too, to hear Sherry's conversation with you, someone who is so close to my heart and whose soul is bigger than anyone I know. She's just a treasure and and so are you. So it's, it's a joy to be part of this. Thanks, Jenny. Um, so my story, I, I'm the youngest of four children born to a practicing Mormon family in the great potato state of Idaho. (laughs) I grew up surrounded by farmland, tractors and trucks. Uh, but my parents supplemented those Idaho surroundings with a lot of travel, good books. We had a plethora of foreign exchange students coming in and out of our house and a lot of diverse, just cultural and volunteer experiences. So my parents were very deliberate 
in opening our eyes to the world, even in small town Idaho. But like many good Mormons, I made my way to Brigham Young University for my undergraduate studies. And I I really loved BYU most of the time. <laughs> I, I loved that my new friends were from all over the country and the world. And I loved the opportunities that it gave me to travel and study abroad. As you mentioned, uh, we, Amy and I met in Jerusalem and that for me was such a pivotal time in my life as I tried to figure out who I was and who I wanted to become and also being there to, to wrestle with history and the current events and the cultures. And that just rocked my world in so many beautiful ways. And, um, and that journey, along with my mission to Italy for my church, led me to know that I wanted to teach. I wanted to take those ideas and wrestle with them and grow and learn with young people. So uh, back at BYU, I when I met my husband, Mike, I was finishing up my studies in English literature and humanities, and then I was heading off to Washington, D.C. to do my student teaching. So Mike and I lived apart that semester. He was starting med school in Salt Lake City, and I was having quite the ride teaching at an urban high school in Washington, D.C. And to paint a picture of that semester, Amy, uh, my first day was September 11th, the September 11th. Oh, my so, gosh. <laughs> yeah, I don't I, think I remembered that, Jenny. That is insane. Oh well, my gosh. and it was it was crazy. I mean, we drove past the Pentagon that day for my first oh. day of work. But I'm so grateful for that because with my students, we went through a lot that year. Wow. And they opened my eyes and they opened my heart and the discussions we were able to have moving forward as a country and as a people. Uh, so, so it was a gift in so many mm. ways. But then following those months of craziness, uh, I got married and ended up working for Sylvan Learning Center in Salt Lake City as a director of education. I was It was mid-year and I couldn't find the right job in the public schools, so I landed at Sylvan. And it was actually such a good fit for me, teaching me how to teach the one and really work on those, work on helping those kids who often slip through the cracks. I also had a baby, our Utah baby boy, and kept working, putting Mike through medical school. And it's funny, I think back to that time, I was fortunate. I had a flexible job. I had great childcare. I had this awesome battery-operated breast pump that I would take <laughs> while I would drive to one center, one school to another. Like in uh, the car? In the car. I was really good at it. And thank heavens I never got pulled over. <laughs> but, Whoa. Like for indecent exposure, like you were fully <laughs> pumping as you drove? Like at I stop was lights? pumping. I had, well, it was on freeways and I had a little covering, but. That is amazing. But I it was, love that. It was like the the quintessential like multitasking and yeah. you know making do with the life I had right then. What an so, image. I love it. I know my kids are going to hear this and like roll their <laughs> eyes that I just shared that. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it that you did. That's the reality for women, right? Like it's totally, it's make totally. it work. Love so it. anyway, after that, finish this up, we eventually moved to Boston and I continued working there and doing some curriculum writing and then had my twins, who are my Massachusetts girls, and when they were about two years old and my my oldest was in kindergarten, I just felt in my gut and in my heart that I needed to go back to school, that I needed to go to graduate school. And it was ever apparent because we lived in Cambridge, Mass, and I would bike past Harvard every day to drop mm. Carter off at school. And it seemed so crazy at the time. Mike was, I mean, he was a resident and mm -hmm. 
it was so busy and I had three young kids, but with some prayer and finding an amazing live-in nanny and student loans and miraculous time management, we did it. And I graduated from Harvard's Graduate School of Education, and my focus was on ed policy and teacher quality and parent engagement. So it was amazing. Mm. It's kind of a blur, but it was amazing. And finally- Oh, oh. sorry. I was just going to say, I I do, I mean, I remember this part of your life, Jenny, and just- looking at you from across the country in awe and just thinking, how is she doing that? But just so inspired and so proud of you. I mean, what an undertaking. I'm. It's just awesome that you did that. So inspiring. Well, you were far enough away that you didn't see all the messiness <laughs> <laughs> no, at I... the ground level, right? But it was, it was amazing and it totally took a village to make it happen. Mm, but great. fast forward 10 years, we then moved to Denver. Um, we've been living here since and continuing our adventure. I added another Colorado baby to the mix. So we have four kids. We do lots of skiing and hiking. I started my own education consulting business since we came here. So working with public schools and also doing a lot of curriculum work for PBS uh, kids and other organizations, and then numerous unfinished personal writing projects <laughs> that I wish <laughs> I could finish. But uh, my faith and and my volunteer work is also a really big part of my life. And uh, most recently, I just have a special place in my heart. And it's probably instilled by my parents and my travel and and all of my experiences, but I do a lot of interfaith work. So I spend a lot of time meeting with other ministers, building bridges, um, working with other faith organizations to find the unity in our diversity, which I feel is so vital uh, to to just help understand the other. So anyway, that's my life so far. It's been a fun ride and so grateful for what I've learned, for the people like you that are part of it and, and for what I can learn moving ahead. Mm. Awesome, Jenny. Thanks so much for sharing all of that. Um, and quickly before we start, just specifically, sometimes I like to ask my reading partners what it was that um, interested them in doing an episode on this podcast. So if you could talk just a little bit about that too. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great question and something I've really mulled over since, mm. you know, since we connected. I've always considered myself a strong feminist, you know, fighting for the voice of women and for my daughters and having countless conversations with all of my soul sisters like you, you know, on these issues. But honestly, when I, 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 I haven't, I've been a little hesitant to join the conversation against that term, you know, mm-hmm. patriarchy. And mm-hmm. I've been thinking, why is that? And probably because of my religious upbringing and the respect I have for the men in li- my life who do often represent this term, right? Mm-hmm. Who on the whole have been absolutely supportive and loving and equally yoked with me. Um, but absolutely, don't get me wrong. Like I do get frustrated with systems and moments of that institutional sexism, and I've totally experienced it. But I also recognize that I have been given leadership and autonomy and incredible opportunities in many of those same systems and institutions. So I've learned I've learned from it and I've risen and I've embraced my life as a woman and a mother and a wife. So I was questioning, you know, is this the right battle? Is patriarchy the problem? Do I really want to blame the men that, you know, I honor and I love? But digging into this more, what resonated with me, Amy, is 
how deliberate and systematic your desire has been to get to the origins of it, to really be educated and understand where it comes from and how we can lift all sexes to a more equal level, that it's not about breaking down the men we love or blaming them or break... It's more about breaking down that the systemic patterns that have left many women and men, as you point out, of life's fullest opportunities. So, and I realize that I've been overly privileged to have such positive experiences, and and I also know that many of my sisters have felt painful effects of patriarchy, and I have in moments as well. So, I love that you're looking at this history and understanding the why, and to make the future better for all. And one other thing I wanted to add too is I also believe deep down and theologically, you know, that my faith is based on a partnership model. I see it in my, my relationship with my husband and, and those around me that even more than patriarchy as we know it, that, that our faith really is about partnership. And I wonder how those origins have changed and what can be done to restore that. And right before I got on Amy, I was... Today is Inauguration Day. Yes. Yay. Yay. And I just listened to Amanda Gorman's inaugural poem. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to that, but she she said this line, and I just loved it. She said, it's the path we step into, and how can we repair it? There is always light if we are brave enough to see it and brave enough to be it. And I just loved that, and I Mm -hmm. feel that's so true in the work that you're doing and then the work that we're all doing to bring all souls up to where they need to be. And Murray's work is just a great place to jump in. So here I am. I love it. Wow. Thank you for sharing that that line of poetry. It honestly, um, there's always light if we're brave enough to see it and brave enough to be it. That line, I think, kind of sums up who you are as a person, to be honest. Like that, that is who Jenny was when I first met you and still is <laughs> like um just shining light and um speaking truth with joy and love and and I love that that's who you are and and I also love um I'm really grateful that you brought up that you kind of had to think um about this and and you had some hesitation about the term breaking down patriarchy um cuz I've thought a lot about that too and And I've said it before, and I just, I'm going to keep repeating it over and over again, because that is something that is so very important to me, that this is about understanding the system of patriarchy. I want to understand the system and how it developed, um, break it down into small pieces so I can understand it, kind of break it, like break it down to understand it and see what people have said about it throughout history. Um, And then like you... I too believe that egalitarianism or what Rian Eisler calls the partnership model, which you referred to, mm-hmm. is that that is the goal. And it's it is, in my opinion, a more just system than a patriarchy, where patriarchy literally means father rule, right? Man rule. And I just believe in egalitarianism, but this is a that partner the partnership model serves boys and men better and it serves girls and women better but this project is not about breaking down men not about blaming the men in our lives like for other men's bad behavior right this is about everyone together educating ourselves about the system in which we all live stepping into that path and then how can we repair it so i thank you for sharing all of that that was such a valuable um 
introduction to the episode today. So we just, I, I think we're unified in our desire to live deliberately and we want to pass on a better world to our children than the one we inherited. So um, thanks, Jenny. So before we talk about the text, Judith Sargent Murray's text, one more step is just to learn a little bit more about the author. Um, so Jenny, if you could tell us about this kind of really little known um, and underappreciated but incredible author, that would be awesome. Totally. And I agree. After I read her essay, I said, I spent seven years in Boston. How did I never right. know about her and right. go see the academy that she started? And anyway, it was just, yeah, it's been really a gift to get to know her. So Judith Sargent Murray was, um, she was an early advocate of women's equality, access to education, and the right to control their earnings. Her essay, which we're reading today, on the equality of the sexes was published a year before Vindication of the Rights of Women, which I think you previously discussed on the podcast before this. Yep. Born on May 1st, 1751 in Gloucester, Massachusetts, Murray was the oldest of eight children in a wealthy merchant family. Sadly, only three of her siblings survived into adulthood. Judith was close friends with her brother, John Rogers, and she got to listen in on his tutoring sessions as he got ready to go to Harvard. But of course, she as a girl was not allowed to receive formal schooling. Girls at the time were barely taught to read and write, and so Judith relied on the vast family library to teach herself history, philosophy, geography, and literature. From a very young age, she wrote poetry, which her father sometimes read to family members, very proud of his daughter's talent. And Judith, I thought this was interesting, also collected letter books, which were these compilations of all her correspondences, starting from the age of 23, to friends, family, business, and political connections bound in books. And by the time she penned her last letter in 1818, she had created 20 volumes with over 2,500 letters, which is amazing. I think the telling part of this is that she believed her words and ideas mattered, particularly in a time when many women didn't see their thoughts as worthy of recording. In 1769, Murray married John Stevens, a ship captain, and they adopted his orphan nieces and her cousin. But during the American Revolution, Gloucester's shipping industry suffered. And as a ship captain, John Stevens lost his livelihood and went into debt. By the end of the war, he was facing debtor's prison, and to help out with the finances, Judith tried publishing under a pseudonym to make a little money. But it wasn't enough, and John left her and fled to the West Indies, where he died in 1786. So Judith's family had converted to the Universalist or Unitarian Church in the 1770s and given land to build America's first meeting house of that de denomination in 1780. They had installed its first minister, John Murray, and Judith and John Murray had been close friends for years. So after Judith's first husband took off to the West Indies and, and passed away, Judith and John Murray began courting and exchanging long letters on philosophy and theology. As Judith put it, I loved this, she hoped they could mingle souls upon paper. And one historian we listened to on YouTube said that in reading those love letters, you get the sense that Judith was just starved for intellectual engagement, like finally someone who's on my level. And John felt the same way. It was so cool. He encouraged her intellectual gifts throughout his life. They got married and by all accounts, they were extremely happy together. As a minister, John traveled a lot and Judith accompanied him sometimes meeting prominent people like George and Martha Washington, 
Benjamin Franklin, and Catherine Littlefield Green. At age 38, Murray gave birth to a son who lived only a few hours, and in 1791, at age 40, she delivered her, her daughter, Julia Marie. Throughout all this time, Murray built a literary life. Women were not allowed to speak publicly, so she often wrote under a pseudonym, sometimes as Honora Martesia or Constantia. I hope I'm pronouncing those right. I think so, she, yeah. <laughs> she published her On the Equality of the Sexes under the pen name Constantia in the prestigious paper, The Massachusetts, that was like the Atlantic of their day. And it's also worth noting that that was the same year that she had a baby, which is pretty amazing. And in 1792, she assumed a male identity and a pen name, The Gleaner, for her column in the Massachusetts Magazine. And Amy, when we were talking about this, pointed out that don't you just love that her pen name was The Gleaner? Mm -hmm. and, and that's what you, you know, you have to be as a woman right. who wasn't given a formal education. So the family moved to Boston the next year where Murray's play, The Medium, in 1795 was likely the first by an American author to be produced on stage, and Murray also published poetry. She was a staunch believer in improved educational opportunities for women, and her essays were vital to the post-revolutionary notion of Republican motherhood. And as you talked about last time, advocates of Republican motherhood argued that the success of the new nation required intelligent and virtuous citizens. And since the education of patriotic sons, future voters, rested with mothers, women should be educated. So this was an important step forward as women were not educated at all prior to this. Murray's essays challenged prevailing notions that the female brain was inherently inferior. She argued instead that women were stifled not by physical limitations, but by lack of access to education. And Murray educated her daughter at home until she was old enough to attend an academy. So meanwhile, Murray's writing kept the family financially solvent. This woman's amazing. She <laughs> like, is amazing. It keeps going on, right? Right. Uh, in 1798, she published The Gleaners, Collected Columns. And, and I love this. To ensure a profit, Murray recruited 800 pre-sale subscribers along with endorsements from President Washington and Vice President John Adams. So not only was she adept at writing, but she was also really good at marketing and business. Yeah, and that's revolutionary too. Women did not do that back then. That was really frowned upon. She's just like such a warrior. I love her. I know. I know. I love that. And and the other thing, she was staunchly nonviolent. I thought this was interesting. She denounced the violence of the French Revolution, which was a hotly contested topic in the United States at the time. And she was also fiercely against the use of corporal punishment for children. She was a vegetarian because she opposed violence against animals and even fish, which it's so funny. She lived right on the coast of Massachusetts, so no clam chowder. Um, <laughs> That's that's hard for me <laughs> to wrap my are. head around. But in 1802, Murray helped her cousin, Judith Saunders, and Clementine Beach open a female academy in Dorchester, south of Boston. And apparently the house that they use still stands, a little changed, but it's still there um, on a little corner there in Dorchester. John Murray, her husband, suffered a stroke in 1809, and after his death in 1815, Murray completed and published her husband's autobiography. She then moved to the frontier town of Natchez, Mississippi, to live with her married daughter, Julia Marie 
Bingaman, and she died there at the age of 69. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> well, thanks, Jenny. Yeah, that's so many great details. Um, what an incredible woman. So let's dig into this essay that she wrote. Um, Jenny and I have chosen a few important points to highlight, and so we'll just take turns sharing the most important parts that jumped out to us. So Jenny, do you want to start us off? Yeah, so we'll start off right at the beginning. I think the fun and really poignant part of this is that she starts her essay with a poem, which mm -hmm. is super close to our hearts. Mm -hmm. uh, I love that she does this. And I, I think, first of all, it's just imaginative. It's creative. It brings the readers in, right? And she's using that the unique sense of poetry to first capture their attention. But then second it's smart. It's witty. Like you have to be intellectually capable, right? To create the rhythms and the rhymes and the imagery. So she's proving a point right from the start that women are in no way inferior in mind and sets up her argument. So I really like that she does that. And I can totally picture her at one of our poetry slams back in the day, totally speaking her piece and soul. So totally. here's how she, here's how she starts. That minds are not alike full well I know this truth each day's experience will show to heights surprising some great spirit store with inborn strength, mysterious depths explore. Okay. So if, if we can stop really quick, even just there after the first four lines, I think um, she's starting out by saying, okay, first of all, let's just establish, we know that people are different from one another, right? Like, so she's saying some people are really exceptionally smart. Um, and she seems to be addressing people who emphasize constantly anytime you bring up like, wait a second, something doesn't seem fair um, in these gendered structures that we have in society. Some people will say, well, men and women are different, right? And this happens to me a lot. I, I feel like people get scared when I try to advocate for greater fairness that I'm saying that all human beings are identical or like they should be identical to each other. And maybe some people do argue that, that everyone should be identical to each other, but I don't. I, <laughs> I, I mean, and, and Murray's just saying like, it's common sense. Look around you. People are different from each other. Equality doesn't mean sameness. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I looked it up. I'm like, what, what does equality actually mean? The dictionary definition of equality is the status of being equal. That's not super helpful, but it says, <laughs> it, but especially in status rights and opportunities. So to me, equality is more like you can have two pounds of apples and two pounds of oranges and apples are different than oranges, but they have the same weight on the scale. So like the same rights and opportunities. So anyway, Murray opens by saying, minds are not alike full well I know, you know, common sense shows us that human beings are different from each other. So yeah. get that out of the way at the beginning. I love that. And, and she continues, but some there are who wish to not improve, who never can the path of knowledge love, stupidly dull, they move progressing on, they eat and drink, and all their work is done. Yeah. So pointing, pointing out that people are different and some, some are more intelligent and vivacious and some are less so, right? And, mm -hmm. and some are ambitious, some are not. And she's just laying the foundation that she's not arguing that everybody's the same. Yeah. And it's about equal opportunity to explore the diversity of our potential, right? That, mm -hmm. that she's going to get into. And also that, yeah, some people are going to excel and others don't, both female and male, and which is an essential part of it. 
that we grow with the right opportunity. Hmm. So continuing, she says, yet cannot I their sentiments imbibe who this distinction to the sex ascribe as if a woman's form must needs enroll a weak, a servile and inferior soul. And that the guise of man must still proclaim greatness of mind in him to be the same. But imbecility is still confined and by the lordly sex to us consigned. Oh, she's so, so good. powerful. I know. I love it. Um, one of the things I love about that stanza is when she says, I cannot imbibe their sentiments. <laughs> like imbibe to drink, right? So literally, like, I am not drinking that Kool-Aid. <laughs> um, I love it. Um and the other thing that stands out to me from that part is that she's addressing the injustice, like the the foundational injustice that men, which she calls the lordly sex, from his position of power, thinks that he has the right to declare what's what in the world. And he's the one who has proclaimed that men have, quote, greatness of mind and women have, quote, a weak, a servile and an inferior soul. Um, and so... We know from previous episodes that that um, that was a paradigm that people inherited from the ancient world. It had been in society for time in memoriam, and it it was still very much alive and well. And so to me, what I hear is that she's saying it's true that some people are less capable and some people are more capable in certain arenas, but those traits are not linked to a person's sex, and it's not a man's right to declare that a man is superior and a woman is inferior. So that's what I got out of that. Absolutely. And I I just think it's hilarious that she's using these words such as imbibe and ascribe and imbecility and servile to express her point towards these men who are all saying women are dull and yeah. intellectually <laughs> inferior. Totally. Like, it's like, come on, guys, really? Like, you think a dull person could write this? Anyway. Yeah, right. Uh, and then, so she finishes with this punch. So she says, they rob us of the power to improve and then declare we only trifles love, yet haste the era when the world shall know that such distinctions only dwell below. Yeah, I love that. That sounds to me, that sounds just like Mary Wollstonecraft. And and again, like you said, Jenny, they were writing at the exact same time, mm -hmm. but just on different sides of the Atlantic Ocean. But men criticize women for being less intelligent, and that then they deny them the opportunity to become more intelligent through education. So, and men roll their eyes that women are so small minded and they only like trivial things like what you just read that we only trifles love, mm -hmm. but then the men confine their life experiences to a very, very narrow circumscribed realm. And so they're not allowed to expand their minds and, and then the men criticize the women for it. So just the injustice of it. And it, it does just sound like Wollstonecraft to me. And it, when I read it, I was thinking about your um, podcast where you talk about Evans, who discovered the Minoan civilization. Mm. And I remember him saying the feminine tittle-tattle, I think, when yes. he saw the depictions of women. And it totally made me think of that. Yeah, totally. It just must be like inane gossip. If you ever see two women talking together, it, they just must be talking about trifling things, right? Totally. <laughs> yeah. And finally, Murray says that those distinctions only dwell below, as in, like, you'll see those distinctions did not come from God. And I love that she ends with that. And she's saying, bring it fast. Haste the era, ladies. <laughs> like, God has <laughs> so much more for all his souls. I just, yes. yeah, I love the ending. So that's the poem. And then Amy and I wanted to highlight, 
Murray has four major themes or four major sections in her essay. And we're going to try and discuss a little bit from each of these, but we wanted to lay them out really quick so you kind of have that framework. First of all, she discusses nature and nurture that women can achieve if given the education because it's in her nature, which she hinted at in the poem. Two, don't worry. This is her balanced argument. Uh, Women can be educated and do domestic work as well, and all will benefit, and we'll get into that conversation. Three, strength and sex. The size or strength of a man does not represent his superiority over women. And finally, the fourth is Eve's choice for knowledge, showing that the argument that Eve is the weak one is in the fall is problematic. So that is what she is doing. So let's get started with her opening argument, talking about the nature of women's intellectual abilities. And I'll just read this quote. She says, may not the intellectual powers be ranged under these four heads, imagination, reason, memory, and judgment. The province of imagination hath long since been surrendered up to us, and we have been crowned undoubted sovereigns of the regions of fancy. Invention is perhaps the most arduous effort of the mind. This branch of imagination hath been particularly seated to us, and we have been invested with that creative faculty. Observe the variety of fashions, here I barred the contemptuous smile, which distinguish and adorn the female world. How continually are they changing insomuch that they almost render the whole man's assertion problematic, and we are ready to say, there is something new under the sun. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I I know. First of all, I think it's I think it's so relatable when she says, here I bar the contemptuous smile. Like <laughs> she knows that if she talks about fashion, that men are not going to take her seriously. And she's like, uh, yeah, do not roll your eyes at me. Like, listen to what I'm saying. I'm just bringing up fashion. And we talked about this on the Wollstonecraft episode, too. We talked about fashion and beauty quite a bit. Um, Because Wollstonecraft was pretty judgy about women who get into fashion. And my reading partner, Megan Alder, and I talked about how we personally struggle to find a balance between like just enjoying looking beautiful and like cute clothes, but not because our culture tells us that as women, we have to look beautiful to please men or to use our looks to kind of wrest whatever power we can from this unjust system that reduces us to our looks, right? Like that's mm-hmm. kind of like always in our minds. And girls really are still given the message throughout our lives that a huge part of our worth is how we're perceived based on our looks and how we're dressed. And so dress and clothing, at least in my life, have become kind of tricky. So um, I love Murray's contribution to the conversation here because um, she says, have, have you seen the imagination and inventiveness and genius that women display in creating fashion, right? So she's almost saying like, you know, we've been so limited in the number of channels that our genius can be channeled into. And so, I mean, given those restrictions, look at the incredible imagination that we've displayed. And she she defends fashion as an art form. And I really love that. That's something that I, I talked about my daughter, Sophie, and that's something that Sophie could really get behind. And I have to mention here too, my friend, Susanna Fur, who she'll be reading A Room of One's Own with us in a later ed- episode. But she was a friend of mine who started her own clothing company and she really rehabilitated my relationship with clothing <laughs> because I really kind of eschewed that whole 
kind of side of myself. And she really did show me that clothing can be a work of art that you wear. And she, she actually, when she started her clothing line, she talked about how she went on um, a mission, a church mission to the Netherlands. And she learned that in um, maybe not from her mission, but maybe from her heart, art history master's degree, but that Dutch women would sometimes sew like these beautiful little um, like embroidery into their clothing, but on the inside where only they saw them and they wore beautiful clothes on the outside. But it was like this hmm. this um, way of investing in themselves and, and that that brought them a lot of joy. And so... I don't know. I love that Judas Sargent Murray kind of rescues clothing and fashion from being denigrated by the men who look down at it. That's so, so powerful. And and I totally relate to that. And I think it is something that we've been trying to balance, right? And try and figure out. And I love that she, yeah, that she turned it on their head. She said, oh, this is what you're saying we have and kind of criticizing us, you know, but... Mm -hmm but look at how amazing it is and and look at that imagination in fact we we've been given the crown of that imagination which i thought was interesting that that you know she she says men you acknowledge that but then she also talks about not only this frivolous clothing but she talks about women's abilities to talk and to gab and tell stories right mm -hmm. as as additional proof of that argument that women are creative and imaginative and, and that it's part of their creative faculty. So she's saying own it, which I think is really, <laughs> really cool and really powerful. But she also says, um, and this is one of her quotes that the needle and the, that yet is the needle and the kitchen sufficient to employ the operations of a soul thus organized so is what we've been given to do as domestic women enough for us with such an amazing intellectual soul? And she says, heavens no. Like there's so mm -hmm. much more. Like look at what we've created already and how amazing it is. And, and there's so much more that we can do. So she then moves on and um, looks at the three other areas of intelligence. She looks at reason, memory, and judgment and concludes that, you know, any of these... Um, deficiencies are merely because women weren't given the chance to learn and equally progress with men. Right. And she says this um, specific quote, she says, quote, are we deficient in reason? We can only reason from what we know. And if opportunity of acquiring knowledge hath been denied us, the inferior, the inferiority of our sex cannot fairly be deduced from thence. So she makes the same argument regarding judgment, saying that if men do have superior abilities in reason and in judgment, she says the reason is, quote, may we not trace its source in the difference of education and continued advantages? Will it be said that the judgment of a male of two years old is more sage than that of a female's of the same age? I believe the reverse is generally observed to be true. But from that period, what partiality? How is the one exalted and the other depressed by the contrary modes of education which are adopted? The one is taught to aspire, and the other is early confined and limited. As their years increase, the sister must be wholly domesticated, while the brother is led by the hand through all the flowery paths of science. End quote. Oh, that... This 
quote personally, like you can feel the pain in -hmm. her words Mm -hmm. when she says, oh, what partiality? I mean, knowing her history and how her younger brother, you know, was the one who was formally educated and she got to tag along and hear some of his tutoring, but she even uses the title, you know, of brother and sister. Mm-hmm. So this really, this idea too, like the words that she used of the idea of leading by the hand through all the flowery paths of science, it's such an intimate portrayal of that care and that nurturing and that guidance that was completely off limits to women formally. And she had to, you know, she had to lead her own hand. She had to educate herself and, mm-hmm. and here she's pointing out, no wonder men appear superior, right? Like your customs, you have made it so, even though we started, you know, off at the same, the same point. And, you know, this, this is a hard one because this is what we see today. You know, it's, it's in education. It's in many of our church or community programs. It's in some families where you see the boy is led by the hand, He's led by the hand to pursue all sorts of interests and aspirations, and the women are confined to either figure it out on their own or given only one option. You know, yesterday I was just talking to a friend of mine, and she told me that she was told that she should go to college to find a husband. That was the reason why she was told that college was a good thing, and it was merely for Mm -hmm. that. I mean, that was the path that she was given. Mm -hmm. And... And it reminds me of how in Boy Scouts, for example, were offered to the boys in my church in the past, and there was nothing for the girls. We had to look elsewhere to find those similar experiences. No one was leading us by the hand in those institutions to learn those skills. We were pretty much left out of the game. And and you see it still, you know, even in even with the advances that we've made, like with science and math, those opportunities are there, but there's still that divide. You know, I see, I was just reading something about um, the research showing that less girls are entering the hard math and science professions. And it's not that they don't have the aptitude. They're testing as high or better, you know, on and, and excelling. But it's, it's that they don't lack or that they don't have the confidence, the same confidence as the boys do to pursue those roads. And I just thought it was so interesting because that lack of confidence has to be rooted in that history of exclusion, right? That mm-hmm. history of of doubt and of oh maybe maybe we're not good enough. Maybe there's a reason or maybe there was a reason why we weren't part of that math and science um or those more complex programs and that doubt deepens. It deepens the divide. So then Marie says, was she permitted the same instructors as her brother? with an eye, however, to their particular departments for the employment of a rational mind, an ample field would be open. So had she been able to have access to that, just think of what the possibilities and that confidence that she could have had. So Marie goes on, it's like she talks about how the fields of astronomy and geography and natural philosophy and even the reptile world, I loved that, (laughs) uh, would help a woman understand her place in the world and her place with God. I, this was a very religious woman, right? Her her second husband was a minister. She she totally mm. believed in that relationship with God and that that women could be more productive. They could be more thoughtful. They could be more earnest and and happy and a happier wife, being closer to God. 
So it's interesting reading this, Amy, that it's made me so grateful for those leaders and for the teachers and the mentors that have taken the call to take a girl's hand, you know, Mm. and to lead them, even if the systems and, uh, you know, the, the programs that we have aren't doing it. Like I, I look at, you know, girls in STEM, I look at girls leadership, which we've been personally involved here, which is an awesome organization just as two examples, right, that are seeing that that we need to to be deliberate. And, and I also think of my own husband who didn't wait for a church community or a scout troop or, you know, some society to teach my girls to be tough backpackers or to hmm. be good skiers or to learn their multiplication tables early on. Like he was mm-hmm. always with them and he led them by the hand. But I've grumbled, you know, over the years when you see the institutional limitations, right, of those who don't have the dads or who don't have that access, or um, it's just something we're still fighting for alongside Murray. Right, exactly. Um, Right alongside Murray, right, because she too came from a family of means, and so they owned books, and they had a family library, which is something not everybody had, and she had a dad who let her use the library as a girl, and and like you said in her bio, that he read her poems aloud to other people, right, and and really encouraged her, and a lot of girls did not get that, Um, and, and so, I mean, my take on that is that kind of what you were saying about your your own daughters in certain ways and and with Murray's own life sh- being able to become educated and um you know kind of rise within the system she was able to do that in spite of the system not mm-hmm. because of it right mm-hmm. because totally. she had exceptional privilege and exceptional um people who could help her um overcome those barriers but most people would not have had those advantages of money or an encouraging dad or white skin, frankly. Um, and and there, it would just be impossible to overcome those barriers because the system is kind of working against them, right? Yeah. And and we see that now in, in education, right? So, yeah. so, and that's close to home for me. Like it hits yeah. home. You know, she's arguing that point that we all have this potential if we can just have that access and the inequality that exists today in you know marginalized communities is really heartbreaking mm-hmm. you know the opportunity just isn't there for many of our to use the term her term brothers and sisters right of mm-hmm. of various races or ethnicities or low income families and and what's been really hard is how apparent and devastating this is during the pandemic which i've it's been interesting when she uses the words confined, right? And mm. limited. I mean, that's yeah. exactly how our world's been, right? With privilege. And I absolutely admit to being part of that, right? During this this whole pandemic and episode, like some, if you have that privilege, you can be led by the hand to better technology or to private schooling or, you know, to learning pods that people have created or other options that have been available to those who have that access. But reversely, you know, they're, our students in in places where they have no other options, but they're, you know, maybe they're from a single parent home, they're fully online, they're completely confined and limited, like she says. It's it's very apparent today in our world. Right. 
Yeah, it has, hasn't it? Just made the system, the structural inequality more apparent that Mm -hmm. some people, when it comes down to it, when things go badly, some people have, again, I I just love that analogy that someone can lead you by the hand Mm -hmm. and continue your education. And then somebody at lots and lots of kids have no one to take their hand and lead them through. So what, I mean, as an educator, Jenny, what what are your ideas about um, what can be done on an institutional level about that to kind of level the playing field? What can any of us do about it? <laughs> and that's, that's the magic question, right? Um, you know, it's what I spent all of grad school grappling with and still do. But, but I, I think this podcast is a great example, actually, Amy, how, you know, you're focusing on understanding the history in order to tackle a problem, right? To mm-hmm. understand how to move forward. And I think that's an example of where we need to start when it comes to educational equity. Like know the history of segregation, of school choice, of school funding, and especially now with PTOs. Like that's a that's a big thing I've looked into here. Um, and be educated about what your school district is doing. So one thing our school district, when I first moved here, which happens to be the district you went to, actually. It is. Yeah, um, I grew up right there. Yep. I know. So when I first moved here, there was a program where um, you could go once a month and the school district would highlight the different uh, areas within the school, like from the budget department to the sports and and. Um, and academics department to the equity department. And it was just available to anybody in the public who wanted to go. And it was a perfect introduction to get to know the school leadership and to get to know their priorities and just to be aware, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So that you can have that voice. And then, you know, second, I, I think not only to be a voice, but you need to be a friend. I think we need to know the kids and know the families at our school and in our neighborhood and in other neighborhoods, right? That mm-hmm. aren't as familiar to us. Um, we need to be a part of the diversity organizations, the very deliberate programs that are trying to have those difficult conversations. And um, and to, you know, that that's how we can hopefully start to break down those barriers between our brothers and sisters, just like Murray was trying to do, do so that we can better take care of each other. But it's, that's my two cents, but yeah. it's, it's a long battle and it's a daily battle, right? To, yeah. to love and reach out and, and be a voice. Yeah. I love what, what you said um, when you talked about, you know, getting to know people outside our neighborhoods too, and outside the communities where we might just kind of not on purpose, but just because our lives are busy, we live in a little bubble of like Mm -hmm. where our carpools take us and where our kids do different clubs and after school activities and stuff. And um, one volunteer effort that listeners might be interested in is one that I just started participating in a couple years ago, and that's the AVID program. And that's all over the country. It's a mentoring program for students who are first generation to go to college or whose parents do struggle to make ends meet for various reasons. And so these kids are at risk of not succeeding in school. Um, Again, because they, they just don't have the, the opportunities. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, I mentioned, or I mentored two students last year whom I could talk about for a long time. I just adore them. Um, 
and just help them with their college applications. And I'm now a mentor to them as they're going through their first, their freshman year in college. Um, and that just like was such a natural thing for me to do. Cause I had just helped my first daughter, Lindsay, with her college application. So I'm like, Oh, I've done this, right? Like I, I mean, I did it for myself and then I had done it with my own kids. So it was kind of like already the water that I was swimming in. So it was just such a natural fit. Um, but I, I just kept feeling as I got to know these kids really well and just comparing the ease that my kids have experienced their entire lives. I mean, through all their education, just again, returning to that, that theme of like so many adults holding their hands and guiding them through and even all the way through to when they were applying for college. And, and my kids just due to their race and just due to the, the luck of where they were born and, and financial advantages. I mean, and then these dear and amazing and brilliant kids that I was mentoring whose parents love them just as much as I love my kids and whose parents are working every day to give those those kids better opportunities but they're immigrants and so they're starting over in a different place and um just the challenges were just more than I can even imagine talking talking to those kids and they were just so strong and resilient um so I, I just I just felt like my kids were born onto a treadmill that was like speeding them forward, like just they almost could just stand still and the momentum would just take them to where they needed to go. And they'll make it <laughs> and they'll make it and they'll be mm-hmm. fine. And then and these other kids who are literally like in our town, like just <laughs> they're part of our family. They're part of our community. And then just by just luck, it seems to me, these other kids were born onto a treadmill and they're, somebody set their treadmill to be pushing them back the whole time. So they're having to sprint just to keep up to neutral. Um, and, and later on the podcast, we'll examine some of the social structures that intersect with patriarchy, like white supremacy and like colonialism that have created some of this situation of such gross inequity in our country for so many children. But anyway, um, for listeners, I I highly recommend looking at avid.org if you're interested in helping close the opportunity gap in education. And especially if you find yourself like I do, looking back on your education and, and realizing that someone did hold your hand and guide you through. And if you want to give back by taking the hand of a child who needs some extra help. So I love that. But um, it's just a great organization. I feel so lucky to be a part of it. Anyway, back to Murray. Um, <laughs> her next point is she says that once a girl has, quote, arrived at womanhood, the uncultivated fair one feels a void, which the employments allotted her are by no means capable of fulfilling. What can she do? To books, she may not apply or if she doth, to those only of the novel kind, lest she merit the appellation of a learned lady. Meantime, she herself is most unhappy. She feels the want of a cultivated mind. So, first of all, how heartbreaking that society at the time thought of the term learned lady as an insult, right? Mm-hmm. So she's saying that young women might think like, I'd love to read a philo- like a philosophy book or an astronomy textbook, but uh, I guess I better just read this trashy novel so I don't get called a nerd, right? Like it's, I, I kind of laughed, but I was also heartbroken because it's like the early example I ever read of girls playing dumb just to, to avoid stigma, right? Um, 
And that still happens today. It totally does. And let me like having taught in, in schools where in some cultures and some areas, kids were afraid to look smart. They were afraid Mm. to put that on. And that stigma exists too in other, in other areas, not just within the women. So that kind of resonated Mm. with me as well. And these kids who have to code switch or have to figure out how to navigate their worlds just because they want to learn. Ah, I hate that to have that inner longing, (laughs) right? And like, oh, that's what I want to do. But humans are such social creatures and it's so hard for us to to break through those stigmas and and not care, right? Mm-hmm. Not care what people think. Even if there's no formal law prohibiting us, if we notice that nobody else is doing it, it's really hard. Exactly. Yeah. So um, from that quote, my other thought was, as she talks about this young woman feeling like a void in her life and wanting to cultivate her mind, but being unable to, um, this is kind of a spoiler because we are going to read Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique down the road. Um, but I just read it for the first time. And Friedan in her book, she writes that Abraham Maslow, which is like the Maslow from Maslow's hierarchy of human, human needs. Um, he said that capacities are needs. Um, He said that if you don't use your capacities, it causes great unhappiness, it causes atrophy, and even physical illness. And so you can imagine these poor women in the 18th century confined to their drawing rooms with their needlework just like listless and droopy and emotionally sick inside because these women, if you think of like their human potential, they were born to do science experiments and explore forests and give lectures to big in big lecture halls about linguistics or <laughs> astronomy or whatever. And instead, all of that potential, um, I just think of like kinetic energy, the potential energy is just sitting there unused and just stagnating inside. And no wonder they felt sick, right? Just all of that potential that is like, no, you must channel that all into your embroidery. And it just... <laughs> is not it doesn't work it makes you sick it's you know it's so powerful that idea of capacities as needs and you know it makes sense right it totally makes sense it's just sometimes when you articulate it you're like that's so true and and it's not just confined to the drawing rooms of the late 18th century it's interesting as i as i was reading this i was thinking of my own mom who is one of the strongest like most well-organized, determined, super well-read people I know. She's amazing. And she majored in home economics in college. And I remember having a conversation with her and I called her to like remind myself too. I said, and to talk to her about it. But I remember her saying with a hint of regret that she really didn't have any other options or, or even interests or at least were a parent that that could be interesting for her besides home economics, teaching and nursing. She's like that that's really what I thought was available to me. And I'm sure we know there were other options, right? But she didn't feel that she could explore those options. And she said, you know, I would have loved to have done business or studied other things, but she just didn't see it appropriate for her, which you know, I'm so She's been happy and she's had a wonderful life, but it's that what ifs, you know, mm-hmm. I, and I can think of other friends and, and we all have some of those, you know, we take one path instead of another, but 
But to have that, to wonder about your own capacity, to wonder, could I have made a difference in another way as well? And we, you know, all make a difference in our own paths, but um, could it have been done differently? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's so hard about your mom, Jenny. And I, too, have so many friends who wonder what if, if I had just known that there were, that I was allowed to do other things, that those other paths were open to me. But that's actually, I mean, I say I have friends. That's totally me too. (laughs) I mean, I, Mm. I've wondered that all the time, Jenny, I specifically with my master's program, which has been absolutely life-changing. I am so grateful for it. Um, I'm so grateful that I came to it now and and not later or you know the other option is never better late than never but but there's there have been a lot of times that I've been in a class where I'm learning some like mind-blowing thing and my soul is just exploding with joy and then I just get this wave of grief as I look at the professor and just think like I should have been doing this as a 22 year old. Like they, they teach this professors teaches the same course to undergrads and, or to, you know, master's students that are 22. Right. And I feel so much frustration because I, I'll just have this vision of like, I, at my age, I'm in my forties. I should be a professor, not a student, just barely beginning to learn this stuff. So I, I, I am grateful for the progress. And, and as I read Murray, I, I'm so grateful to live in a time where I was more than she was, right? I mean, I was led through by the hand through the fl- flowery paths of school. But I do feel like then I was led by the hand to the exit of that path. As soon as my bachelor's degree was over, um, it really did feel like here's the women's exit. And I was like, okay. And I just kind of followed the path I was being led on. Like, this is where women get off off the path and I didn't even question it. And I loved school. I loved formal schooling way more even than my husband did. We were in the same classes together and he would like literally like in a cartoon be holding up like his Shakespeare book. And whereas I was like really reading my Shakespeare, he would hold his Shakespeare book up and have like a computer programming book behind it because he just like wanted to get out of school and start working. So anyway, I loved school, but I, so if we, if we think about me and Eric, I was the one who like would have loved to go to graduate school, but I never even thought about it for myself. I just assumed he would go. And um, so anyway, I'm grateful that the point of exit on education has for women has gotten later and later in the United States in the century since Murray wrote. And she certainly helped contribute to that progress. Um, I'm super, super grateful for that. And and in some communities here in the United States, girls are encouraged to pursue education and achieve their own you know, unique human potential in the area of their talent and passion without restriction. But in some communities, they are still kind of led to the women's exit, which is before the men's exit. Mm -hmm. And it's before they've reached their potential. That is how I felt in my life. I exited the path before I reached my, my unique potential and what would have brought me a lot of joy and more opportunities. So in my opinion, there's still a ways to go. Yeah. And you know, it's so true, Amy. And there's so many assumptions that are made, right? And as you said, in particular communities, that they don't even get the chance to consider an alternative path, right? Mm-hmm. That they're, that option isn't even laid out to them. So mm-hmm. it, it's so important to have these conversations and, and to break it down. So mm-hmm. this next quote actually goes along with that. 
Quote, is she united to a person whose sole nature made equal to her own education hath set him so far above her that in those entertainments which are productive of such rational felicity, she is not qualified to accompany him. She experiences a mortifying consciousness of inferiority which embitters every enjoyment. So even if a husband and a wife are in the beginning equals, once a husband begins to pursue that learning, the woman is left behind and suddenly feels embittered, less qualified, inferior, that, that sickness, right? Because, mm -hmm. wait, I haven't reached my potential. And as I read this, I was thinking, you know, you and I, Amy, were both, you know, a young wife and young mother and graduating from college about the same time as our husbands were heading into grad school. And we were crossing our fingers that we would end up on the same coast, but that didn't happen. You were <laughs> out in Stanford and, and we were over in Harvard. But um, for me, like that was a tough move. And like you said, you know, our exit was, has been later on. I had my bachelor's degree. I had work experience. I had a little 18 month old, but, but I did, I suddenly lost much of my identity. I was in a new place, you know, where Mike was a doctor to be. He was growing. He was mingling in the intellectual realms, you know, with all of these giants. And and my traditional learning had stopped. And there were moments where I totally relate to what she's talking about, that inferiority, right? When you're at a dinner party and everybody's spewing out all their degrees and their experiences. And I'm like, I just changed a diaper. And yeah. <laughs> um, I did yeah. feel a little embittered. And again, you know, I, I had had so many experiences and I loved being a mother, but then suddenly to deepen the divide, I was pregnant, you know, with twins yeah, and soon to be a mother of three. So it, it's very relatable to, to think, wait a second, where, you know, how can I feel confident? Can I feel confident in the, in these worlds? And, and totally, that was a huge reason why that yearning came to me, right. To, to choose to go back to work, to choose to, go back to graduate school in Boston. Um, I knew I was progressing in different and important ways as a mother, but I wanted that formal and that professional education as well. I wanted to join in the conversations and be a part of those conversations. And, you know, as I was thinking about this, one thing that really was confirmed to me in grad school is that, and, and I think it's important to note that my motherhood was its formal education and still is, right? It's a type of my education. Fatherhood, motherhood, any experiences in our life are preparing us to be better learners. In fact, in the office where I am right now, we were hanging up all of our degrees when we moved here. Mm -hmm. And I realized, man, Mike has a lot more degrees <laughs> that I'm <laughs> hanging up. Oh, and I do like wow. he has all these cool certificates yeah. and then he has his board certificate and license yeah. and all of this. And so I actually made, I took a picture of me when I was pregnant with the twins <gasps> and I turned it into my motherhood degree, my diploma, I and it's hanging it. up there too. Oh my gosh. Too, good for you. The, because I do believe like we all have the, the key is to have those choices, right? To yes. not be yes. thrown into that track, but to realize I'm making a choice, yes. which, which I did. I believe I was making that choice. And I think the fact that I, at that stage, was entering graduate school, it made me a different voice, a different, um, I think I was a better participant. I think I had a unique perspective going into the academic halls. 
And as I think about it, but it was a hard step. It was a very hard leap for me to make having been gone for that long. I'm sure you relate. Mm -hmm. And, but I think that's an example, another example of how patriarchy is hurting people. If we don't find ways to let these otherwise silent or passed over voices join the dialogue, whether of academia or social dialogue or professional engagement, it's so hard for, you know, a woman who's been a mother and maybe out of the the professional field for a while to get back in, right? Like we mm-hmm. make these barriers and we're missing out on so much by by putting those limitations. So, you know, I I was grateful that I had a partner who saw me as an equal, but if you don't have that hope in the future moment or the opportunity in your life or it's just too myopic to even see beyond um those traditional blinders, like it can be deeply painful. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, wow, I could really, I do remember that, Jenny, I remember that time of our lives. And and I think you, again, were just, I think I do perceive you as being so deliberate and that you were making a choice. And and I love that you, that you hung up that picture of yourself and, and <laughs> it, as a way to honor that really crucial um, like you said, that's a way of learning. That's part of our education too. And um, and I love that anybody who walks into that office can see that. And um, <laughs> I think that's awesome. And one other thing I thought of, as you said, you know, in terms of patriarchy's role in this, one thing that I also thought of is um, friends that I have where, um, you know, a wife like like we talked about a little bit, that the wife will have that inferiority feeling, which I could totally relate also when Eric was in graduate school and I was changing diapers like you talked about. Um, and both of us knowing like we are equally yoked, we're just as smart as each other. Like this is, it did feel like, wait a second, like <laughs> um, we, you know, I did feel something missing, but I feel lucky that we were able to get back on track fairly quickly. Um, but I do have dear friends where, it just has become a real wedge in their relationship where perhaps the wife um, hasn't been able to get over the the feeling of inferiority and that embitterment that, that Murray talks about um, that feeling like at the, the meeting or even just getting together with friends where she just sits silently and is just like, I don't even have anything to say. And he, now he's kept developing and his horizons have just kept expanding and growing and mine, like what happened to my life. And I think that sometimes in some ways, obviously that hurts the woman, but in some ways that's a way that, that this traditional patriarchal model ends up hurting men as well, because in these, you know, these friendships that we have, the husband actually wasn't the architect of the system either, right? Like, it's not Mm -hmm. like he planned it this way. He didn't like oppress her. He's not knowingly oppressing her. And a lot of times the husband has said, like, would you want to go to school? And she's like, no, because it's internalized that she doesn't allow herself to. And he maybe would have supported her. But now suddenly, you know, years into their marriage, suddenly his wife is furious at him. And it's it's actually not really his fault. And it's not her fault. It's just a crappy system. Yeah. And I mean, we're both blessed. We have amazing husbands who are like, supportive and wanting us to to succeed and reach our potential but even then you know we we get on these trains we get on these these um and they're very fast moving trains right, right. that we can't yeah. find a way off and or maybe we think it's the only train the only option and you know yesterday me, yeah. 
Well, one thing I was thinking too is that sometimes like your example there, well, I don't, you know, I don't know if I necessarily want to go to school or want to do that to you, but I think sometimes the women can be women's worst enemies Mm. to encourage this crappy system (laughs) that you Mm -hmm. said, right? Mm -hmm. By doubting other women's choices or doubting themselves to take that detour. And you see that in Murray's time and you see it today. Like one example I was thinking of was when I was in Boston and decided to go back to grad school, I was part of this co-op preschool because we were all poor living in (laughs) Cambridge. And Mm -hmm. we had this great co-op preschool that I had been a part of for, you know, a few years. And I was kicked out of the co-op preschool (laughs) when I went back to school and had a nanny taking my place in the rotation. And she was far more capable than I. She was like totally amazing, like this energetic, awesome awesome teacher who had no one else to focus on, but these kids. Right. And, and these were good friends of mine. These were educated women who just disapproved of that choice that I had made in that track. And they didn't want to see a mother outsource or share those domestic roles. And that was really shocking to me and really hard. And I had to kind of, you know, find my center again and say, okay, I really, I know I'm supposed to do this. I know this is right. We've made this decision together, but sometimes you have these other voices working against you that can make it really far more difficult than it already is. Yeah. Uh, That's so, I'm so sorry that happened to you. That's, that would really, really have hurt me. And I'm, I'm just disappointed to hear that that still happens, especially like you said, in Cambridge, like (laughs) it's, of all places and not that long ago that's that's too bad jenny we women need to support each other better than that um that's also kind of a segue into the next point right because you talked about like there was this expectation that a woman should be doing these domestic chores or like these domestic things like that's your job as a woman and so you a little bit got ostracized because you weren't keeping the traditional model. And and Murray does talk about those domestic chores that we think of as only being a mother's job, right? Yeah. And she tries to calm the fears of these men, right? Who want their warm dinners and their clean house. Yeah. And yeah. she says here that um, these domestic skills are, quote, easily attained. And with truth, I can add that when once attained, they require no further mental attention. Nay, while we are pursuing the needle or the superintendency of the family, I repeat that our minds are at full liberty for reflection, that imagination may exert itself in full vigor, and that if a just foundation is laid is early laid, our ideas will then be worthy of rational beings. So basically, she, she's saying, we got this, men. It's not brain surgery. Like, we can keep house and do what needs to be done while strengthening our minds and intellect and thus will be better. And I was laughing as I read this because I thought about all the times that I've cleaned the bathroom or done dishes or changed a diaper while listening to Audible or watching a lecture for school and and that multitasking that we've been, you know, ingrained to do, right? And she says, you know, Marie is saying here, we can seize those moments to grow and learn and still get all that work done. And what I think is interesting is it's almost um, that this Republican motherhood, which you talked about, you know, in the other episode is it's kind of a product of this argument, this balancing, right, of the wants and the desires um, and, or the wants and the needs. 
So we want to be a part of this country, but we know that voting isn't an option yet. So let's balance our asks, you know, and find out our Mm. place within the system without totally toppling the system yet. We're not ready for Mm -hmm. that. So for them, like what other option is there? So we have to, to find that balance. Mm -hmm. And make a small ask that we think will actually work rather than too big of an ask where we're just going to be like, uh, no, (laughs) right? Like it's kind of strategic maybe. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I have a lot of thoughts about this, but one of them was that that exact argument was made by men and made by women to keep women from getting the right to vote. You know, a hundred years later, they claimed that civic engagement would keep women from keeping the house and from taking care of the children. And um, yeah, later down the road, we'll read a fantastic speech um, that addresses that exact concern. And like you, I also love to continue my education while working. And, um, but I do have concerns about her saying like, don't worry, men, we'll still do all the housework. Right. (laughs) So what do you think about that? Oh, it's totally true. Like, and obviously context is huge, right? As you were saying, she lived in the 18th century. She's needing to be realistic about how far to push. And, and maybe she's not quite ready to push that far herself. And, even though she does hint to wanting more and kind of, you know, throws these little nuggets out there. But I, I was just talking with a friend yesterday about this because she's chosen to go back to school in her late thirties, you know, with four kids at home. And Mm. she has an amazingly supportive husband through all of this, but she was just telling me, you know, even with his support, she has still opted or she's felt she had to, hang on to so many of those home and parenting roles and whether it's Mm -hmm. cooking or teaching or managing life or, you know, heading to the gym with her kids or whatever it is that she feels like she has to do that in order to justify and make this work. She's balancing Mm -hmm. so many of these spinning plates, right? Not to rattle the home life too much with her choice. And you see that. And, and it's especially true if, if, you know, financially, you might not have the option to, to get more outside help or to find ways to, to, to make that more even. And so I guess to your point, the be everything to everyone probably has hurt us in the long run. Um, and maybe hurt men's ability to dive in and find their place within that. Right. Right. Um, but it makes you wonder, like, would women have progressed? Would Murray's essay have just been thrown in the garbage, right? And nobody would have, like, would would we be where we are today? And maybe we'd be in a better place or maybe we wouldn't. It's... Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows, right? Yeah. And baby <laughs> steps forward are better than no steps forward. And most people, you know, you know, are born into the culture they live in and don't make any positive impact at all. And great for her. And I love the baby (laughs) steps forward. Um, Yes. And yeah, totally your point about women today, having all this pressure on them to be everything to everyone and be the superwoman who can do it all. Um, I do think maybe that that in a lot of ways is where we are in social evolution, where we've, we have been working on girls opportunities and girls self-confidence for the past decades and centuries. But now maybe the next step is to work on boys' participation in home life, like you just said. Um, 
first of all, so that women aren't carrying the entire load. And of course, there's exceptions to that. And in the last episode, I talked about how my husband in my family tends to take on more of the burden than I even need him to sometimes. But but that's not usually the case. It usually is really, truly the woman who's kind of trying to do it all. and But then those traditional roles haven't evolved quite as fast on the male side of it. Um, and one problem that I also thought of is that um, well, that you alluded to, one problem is that even if men are willing to do more of the domestic work, there's still a stigma against it, right? So this reminded me of several years ago, we have a good friend, Zach, and he worked at this huge accounting firm. And he, I think they had five kids at the time, they eventually had a sixth, but like five little kids. And Zach tried and tried to change the culture at that accounting firm where he worked so that he could just get like get into the office earlier and then go home earlier and so that he could spend more time with his kids and help around the house. But he was really punished for it at work. People did not want to see him leaving at three in the afternoon, even though he had gotten there at like three in the morning or four in the morning and his boss didn't like it. And he, he tried and tried to try to, you know, change the culture so that men could participate more at home and he was punished for it. So he like wrote this, big manifesto that he sent to everybody. It went viral at his company when he, when he quit and had this big, like Jerry Maguire moment of like, I'm lighting this place on fire on my way out the door. But like, it just didn't work at that company. And, and the other thing is that I have right now, I can think of a couple of friends where the husband has been kind of the primary nurturer and, and at times the full-time stay at home parent, which is awesome. And it's so valuable. And, but these men have a really hard time feeling like it's a valid and worthy way for them to spend the prime years of their life. And I feel like that's another way that the, that traditional patriarchal model hurts boys and men because it robs them of the deep satisfaction and the deep joy that comes from nurturing children. And, and to, to make a parent um, feel bad about themselves just because they're a man, right? Like when they've done this, uh, this amazing, wonderful work, um, I think that's really harmful if, if that's what the man wants to do because that's his nature or if that's what he needs to do because that's what's working out best for their family. Um, yeah, I just think that model harms men as well. But back again, back <laughs> to Judah Sergeant Murray, I keep, I keep um, going off on these roads, but I think that she they're is important. contributing- yeah, they, they are kind of the roots of things that we're still seeing in our culture today. No, and it's powerful to share those. So this part is really interesting, actually, where she starts pulling in her religious beliefs to support her arguments that women are meant for more than household jobs. So she says that if you want to say, quote, domestic employments are sufficient, then you must not believe in God or the purpose of existence. I would calmly ask, is it reasonable that a candidate for immortality, for the joys of heaven and intelligent being who is to spend eternity in contemplating the works of deity should at present be so degraded as to be allowed no other ideas than those which are suggested by the mechanism of a pudding or the sewing the seams of a garment? Pity that all such censures of female improvement do not go one step further and deny their future existence. To be consistent, they surely ought. <laughs> Ouch. <Wow. laughs> I know. I love that. 
Yeah. So she's saying here, if you want to say that our duties with home and children should be all we need, then basically just deny that there is a God or <laughs> eternal life for women, right? Because <laughs> then you'd just be consistent with those degradations. And it's quite the argument, and especially in a society, you know, that's so religiously based and founded on God and uses God often to justify, right, which we'll see later on too, um, the subjugation of women is pretty stinging. And mm-hmm. and I love it. And I love that she throws pudding and sewing into the face of these, you know, God-believing men. But, yes. you know, I think it's interesting that sometimes our theology speaks the truth, but the practices go counter to that. And that's something, you know, even in my theology and my faith, you know, we profess that women are equal and beloved and goddesses to be and like so beautiful, the teachings that are there. But yet sometimes the practices we go and there isn't one song or one scripture that's included that includes a woman's voice or includes a woman's story. Or I think about and I know, you know, Sherry talked a little bit about this, about the theology of believing in both a heavenly father and a heavenly mother and but do we practice and model a partnership leadership that we essentially believe exists in heaven so i think we can do better and i think marie is showing this that listen if you're professing this theology but you're not showing it on the ground like this totally negates who we are um i just think it's really powerful mm-hmm. and two more things to note um one thing she she talks about in this part is just really quite funny, actually. <laughs> she <laughs> she talks about the size and the strength of man and how they shouldn't be reasoned to say they are superior. And her best comment, it's totally tongue-in-cheek, is here. She says, quote, But if this reasoning is just, a man must contend to yield the palm to many of the brute creation, since by not a few of his brethren in the field, he is far surpassed in bodily strength. So (laughs) if that were so, then basically cows would be mentally superior to men. And again, she's saying your logic is ridiculous, that the souls must be equal. So give us a chance, guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that part. It's hilarious what you say. That yeah, if that's if that's true, then cows are smarter than men. And she also says kind of playfully that maybe nature, quote, had invested the female mind with superior strength as an equivalent for the body <laughs> bodily powers of man. Um, so like she's saying, maybe intelligence is inversely proportional to size, and actually women are smarter. So, um, but she says, quote, but waving this however palpable advantage for equality only we wish to contend like (laughs) we're smarter than you but don't worry we're not going to try to subjugate you we'll just try to make it equal she's so funny i actually like so wry in her her humor yeah and she waves those little nuggets out there but then comes back and like okay this is the 1790s and you know we can't go too far right Um, so let's move to the final part of marie's essay which is based off of a letter she wrote 10 years earlier to an unnamed man. I believe he was unnamed. Apparently this guy loved his Bible or the sacred <laughs> oracles as she calls them in the essay. And furthermore, he he's used the examples from the sacred oracles to justify the superiority of man to her. 
So again, Murray's taking this argument and turns it upside down using the story of Genesis, Adam and Eve, and the transgression of eating the forbidden fruit. So instead of making Eve the sinner and the evil one, she makes Eve quite innocent with genuine motives. Where Adam was the weak and servile inferior soul, which is so interesting because she's kind of hearkening mm-hmm. back to that opening poem's false description of women, right? And now mm-hmm. she's she's saying that's really what Adam portrays in this. Right. Right. So the quote I think is she says, quote, let us examine her motive. Hark, the seraph declares that she shall attain a perfection of knowledge. It doth not appear that she was governed by any one sensual appetite, but merely by a desire of adorning her mind. A laudable ambition fired her soul, and a thirst for knowledge impelled the predilection so fatal in its consequences. That's the end of the quote. Yeah, it's she. It's so interesting how she is using Eve as seeking something good, right? And however, Adam knew full well what he was doing and chose to be with his girl. That's all. Like, yeah, (laughs) he didn't have any position, positive or moral motives. He just wanted to be with his, with his girl. And then she adds, and this is so great. It's just fun to read. Blush ye vaunters of fortitude, ye boasters of resolution, ye haughty Lord of creation. Blush when you remember that he was influenced by no other motive than a bare pusillanimous attachment to a woman. (laughs) <laughs> so he was hooked to Eve and yeah, he was that yeah. weak and soft and he couldn't bear being without her. Uh, it's so interesting that she she turns it on the side. And and I have never read an interpretation of Adam and Eve like this before. you know. And it's funny because I took a whole seminar course in college about Adam and Eve and the garden and all of the interpretations through the ages and the humanities. You know, usually... In the tradition, Eve was always depicted as negative and demonized, right? And mm-hmm. degraded because of this choice. She was the one to blame, yes. That's that's what we know of. And she was the weak and the unruly one. And that's the pattern we see. You know, in our in in my own religious tradition, we we see Eve differently. We believe she did make a choice, and that choice was part of the plan. And we we believe, you know, we revere her. And she's part of the journey, which is something I love about our faith prediction, our faith tradition. But Murray's in- interpretation doesn't follow the blame Eve track, but yet she doesn't hail her as a hero either. Mm-hmm. So she she's basically saying that Eve was genuinely deceived by a righteous temptation, you know, to seek mm-hmm. that knowledge. But as a universalist, she still holds, you know, traditionally that the fall ideology that it was a bad thing. But Eve is definitely not the inferior one in this deal. That's how I read it. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I love that you brought that out, Jenny. And one thing I thought of as you read her quote was how, just in general, how deeply humans are impacted by their origin stories. Mm-hmm. Um, Gerda Lerner points that out in the, those episodes on the creation of patriarchy. And and Jew- Jewish and Christian women have been wrestling with these exact questions for hundreds, even a thousand, more than a thousand years before Murray was writing, right? And, and that other book by Gerda Lerner, The Creation of Feminist Consciousness, um, that Jeanette read with me, it cites so many Christian women proposing 
um, you know, various um, variations of, of more empowering ideas about even offering different readings of the text, but no one ever read what these women wrote. And so every woman in her turn just had to reinvent the wheel, feeling alone and, and spending so much energy contending with feelings of their inferiority as women that came from this origin story of the woman who ruined everything. So it's, it's just awesome for us in this historical project to finally arrive at this time where a woman actually got her work published. Like she is in a, she's participated, Murray did in this long tradition of what we would now call feminist biblical criticism. Right. Mm -hmm. But, but the difference is now people actually read Judith Sargent Murray and that's just awesome. And then in our, actually in the next century, Sarah Grimke is also going to do careful close readings of the Bible that people actually read too. And and we're going to talk about her on our next episode. So I love that Murray kind of takes her place in this long tradition of really careful, brilliant readings of the Bible that, that, that have to, to ask these questions because a traditional literal reading of that story just is, is hard emotionally. It's really hard for a woman to mm-hmm. take the place of even that story. So anyway, um, that concludes our discussion today, Jenny. And that was just awesome. In As we end, as we kind of wrap things up, what's something that you think you'll take away from the text? Oh, you know, there there are lots of things that I'm going to take away. First of all, now I know who, who Judith Sargent Murray is, which I'm so happy. <laughs> and I loved her wit and her you know, ability to balance those asks within her context and her just, she's so clever with her reasoning. I loved all of that. I think, you know, I think for me, one of the greatest takeaways was just her courage to speak and to write, like, and to fight within this culture uh, to make the world better in a time when women weren't taught to believe their voices matter. Like she, she, and she didn't just write about it. She took action. Like, I, I mean, her bio took so long to share because she had done so much, right? She started an academy. She published plays. She penned these articles. She saved all of her letters and, and just her partnership too, that with John Murray, that they really were a team and were fighting to, to lift all souls to God. I, you know, it's inspiring and it makes me want to do better and to share my voice and, and be a part of the conversation more And Amy, you shared with me a quote by Abigail Adams that says, my bursting heart must find vent in my pen. And, and I think it's that inspiration, you know, to find those words and, and not just an argument about the equality of women and men, but of all souls, right? Mm -hmm. Particularly in a time when, when so many feel marginalized and unheard and confined, we need to lead all people by the hand to those flowery paths, whatever flowery paths of science or literature, or freedom or faith or whatever potential they have. And, and I just love that she did it with such class and brilliance and respect and reason in her work. So it's a work that never stops and, and I'm inspired to continue to be a part of it. Mm, I love that, Jenny. Um, you're, your point, I, I loved everything you said. And one thing that stuck out to me was your point about, um, you said all souls, like lifting all souls to reach their potential. And um, that reminds me of a quote that we didn't highlight, actually. And that was um, her acknowledgement of the existence and the dignity of 
what she calls, quote, masculine women and, quote, effeminate men. And I, I just felt like in, in the 18th century, that was really a, ahead of her time. And I saw it as a little tiny step in the direction of, of recognizing, as you said, all souls and their need to be free and to have access to all the opportunities that help human beings flourish. And it's going to take a really long time before people start writing about the spectrum of gender and sexuality. Um, but they will. And, and I'm excited that eventually on this podcast, we'll get to the point on the, the historical timeline later in the 20th century that we'll um, start to hear um, some diverse voices talking about that too. So thank you so, so much for being here, Jenny. This was just um, such a, an invigorating conversation. And I learned so much from you and from the text. You're just the best and I adore you. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, and thank you, Amy. This has been such a gift to reconnect and to share our thoughts and, and work through all of this amazing literature and text and voices. So thanks for letting me be a part of it. Yeah, thank you. Well, on our next episode, uh, we will jump ahead into the 19th century with Letters on the Equality of the Sexes by Sarah Grimke. This text was written in 1838, and these letters are considered by historians to be the first sustained argument for women's equality written in the United States. As a daughter of an aristocratic South Carolina family that enslaved African Americans, a fervent abolitionist, and a lifelong devout Christian, Sarah Grimke brings a radically new perspective to the conversation. Uh, she has become a hero of mine, and her work was actually the topic of Gerda Lerner's PhD dissertation. So I'm really excited to talk about Sarah Grimke's letters next week. Um, the text can be found online or you can just purchase them in the form of an inexpensive little book. And that's what I did, and I highlighted almost every page because they were so awesome. Um, so get the book if you can, or look the letters up online, or as usual, you can just listen to the conversation as we discuss Sarah Grimke's work, Letters on the Equality of the Sexes and the Condition of Woman, next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Breaking Down Patriarchy.